Greetings from Longtime No See, the podcast. Every week, we'll be inviting two blindfolded comedians to answer a series of questions about their careers, lives, and opinions. Now, let's remove those blindfolds and start the show. Hi! What would your opening line with your celebrity crush be? Loved you in Harry Potter. <laughs> Worst date you've been on? A man bit my neck mole off once. You did what? A man bit my neck mole off. Oh my God, Jack almost fell off his chair. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast. Consequence Podcast Network. Support for this season of Assembly comes from the Improv Asylum in Boston, Massachusetts, and New York, New York. Consequence of Sound in Chicago, Illinois, and New York, New York. And Catherine Beckett in Brooklyn, New York. If you'd like to support Assembly, visit our website, www.theassemblypodcast.com, or you can email me directly, theassemblypodcast at gmail.com. Oh, we're about to start. Here we go. Got to be warned And I've wronged The pattern of the beast of this show She's foaming up at the lip You see, getting warmer in the middle She's carrying all the trash away More than just a little We're warned We've got to move away from this show The Modern School of Film presents Assembly, a look at what brings us together in parts. My name is Robert Malazzo, and I'll bring you what I see, what I hear, and what I learn. Now, let's start the assembly. This week, podcast time is funny that way. We're halfway through our assembly with David Cross, and the coup de grace is only days away. This coup will see David live writing his next and future act of stand-up comedy, which may or may not even happen. I'm cool either way. I just want to see how it comes together. When we were last together, David was saying goodbye for a minute as he subwayed to the doctor for hopefully a healthy surgery. Healthy surgery. Oxymorons. Like comedic actor or... How can someone who's funny be thought of as an actor? It's a thin line, acting as it relates to comedy. Let's start with this idea of David building an act, his next stand-up act, which quickly makes David the actor. Further proof is he does a lot of acting, a lot of dramatic acting. Further, further proof is it's what he started studying in high school, acting. Though wouldn't it be awesome to have AP stand-up comedy? (laughs) 
This season, I've met a lot of people who are comedians or comics, but they've all done what I would consider traditional acting at one time or another, and quite well, really, though I seriously doubt they would call themselves actors. Conversely, over the years, I've talked to a lot of performers who do and say really funny things, but are passionate that they are actors or actresses rather than comics or comedians. For example, Kristen Wiig once told me that she is an actress who does a range of material, including comedy, but she is not a comedian or a comic. Instead of deciding who's what and who gets to choose, though, on this part of David's assembly, I want to look at the one thing that both comic and actor need. It's the part of the thing that breaks all ties the audience, their form, their function, and this flip David had. It's as if he's gone from derision to experimentation to collaboration. Why build a wall between him and the audience only to knock it down now? So let's get to work, the audience. But first this acting thing. Well, first glittery costumes, then acting, and then a part of David's path where he rewrote his audience rules once again. This time though, there were two pens. Here's part three of the assembly, your shows of show. You know, when I was a kid, I, I always loved comedy um, and I loved stand-up and I had a bunch of albums. I had George Carlin albums, Richard Pryor, who else did I have? Jonathan Winters. Were you a Lenny Bruce guy? Yes and no. My mom got me into him and, and I read the Lenny Bruce biography. Did you see the movie, the Bob Fosse movie? Oh yeah, several times, yeah. I loved kind of what he was doing and and as and now as an older person I can kind of look back on what I really was feeling he was really important he was courageous and ballsy but he wasn't that funny I think I was sort of struggling with that idea I mean he was great he was so important and uh but he wasn't that funny he was funny there were funny things but it wasn't that funny <laughs> you know but he was brave yes I said to you on the phone, I thought you were brave to include the audience. But I mean, it's it's my audience. They're they're there to see me. It's not. It would be pretty brave, but also a little uh, self indulgent for me to go on to somebody else's show and go, okay, I want to take ten minutes to ask everybody what they thought of these jokes, and you know. Yeah. But sometimes people pipe up, but it's not necessarily brave. I'm not in a biker bar in Methuen, Massachusetts, like going. So, what would you guys think of this bit? You know, I mean. When they bat something down, do you take it into consideration? Oh, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Is it once it's a response, twice it's a trend? Like, how many times? Uh, it varies. Sometimes I, I, in fact, not even sometimes, I'd say quite often I agree with them. And I go, yeah, you know what? Because they don't know. They haven't been to every show. And, and I'm like, you know what? I've tried that six different ways. And I've thought about the context of it and flipping this and uh, it's just not working so I think it's time to give it up and people are like yeah you know move on I'm like yeah you're right okay didn't work maybe I'll revisit it next you know next time I, I haven't gotten very many comments or answers to questions that were uh, hurtful or or, uh, or negative I mean sometimes people tell you like don't do that we didn't like that bit that's fine I think the audience gets that's part of the process and they you know I think that's in, in part what's fun for them and I mean my audience is my audience I think they're a little bit older now and they're there for a reason they've come out they're going to be respectful I want to go back a little bit you had gone to a performing arts school mm-hmm. I went to Northside oddly enough on the north side of town even though it wasn't like inner city but it was definitely an urban environment which was cool and it was very diverse and uh and so it was a, a completely different world and it wasn't about we 
nobody even gave a shit about the football team and you know at the other schools all jocks and everybody was gearing up towards the friday night football game and all that kind of bullshit the drama classes were a refuge from shitty high school stuff and it was great saved my life i I do uh, honestly think it might have been instrumental in saving my life why First of all, I'm, I'm working on something I actually liked as opposed to a, you know, shitty English class with a teacher who was, he had no passion, no imagination, no creativity. You mentioned there was a teacher. Yeah, Tim Haberger. It's so funny to look back on it now because I think he was like 27, but for all of us when we were like 17, 18 years old, 16, 17, 18, we were like, he's so cool, he's an old dude, but he's cool, you know. I think he even came to see an early stand-up set. He was very, he was... Is he still alive? Yes. Are you still in touch with him? I was still... Oh, Tim? Not in touch with that guy. <laughs> in touch with my inner self from then. Um, uh, not really. I saw him uh, maybe five years ago when I was in Atlanta for Thanksgiving, I think, and um, and he's also f- somewhat friendly with my sister and you know all my family except for one sister is down in Atlanta, So and I'm there like three four times a year now but yeah he was you know good good uh, highly influential important person in my life did he ever turn to you for advice yeah i would say at best we argued a lot it was not uncommon even after high school for dave and i to just get in a flat-out argument things like can you antagonize your audience you know why do you want to do this if you hate them so badly you know that kind of thing what's the answer to that <laughs> nothing it just he would say something like well they're all fucking idiots you know what i mean it's like well not every one of them is a fucking idiot i'm there and he's gone well yeah you know you're kind of an idiot right now what's your name and what do you do so tim habiger uh north side school of the arts in charge of the drama program and what else did you need how oh, i know david he went to the school of the arts and that was kind of a supporter of his first few stand-up sets, his first efforts at doing stand-up, how he was approaching stand-up in terms of the way he would relate to his audience. And then we became friends beyond that, basically up to Mr. Show. He was stuck in uh, Georgia. He went to the School of the Arts. Some of the kids that went there were, you know, millionaire kids back before that was really common. At the same time, there was a lot of busing going on in Atlanta, especially if you were in a magnet school. So there were kids, very poor kids, that were going to the school who would have to get up at four in the morning to get a bus from the very far south side of Atlanta. Dave came kind of from the middle of that, you know, single mom, living in apartments, you know, and that kind of thing. And When I started, he came over from the music theater program. That's where David started glittery costumes. And if you can imagine Dave, it's like his connection to glittery costumes is just nothing but make fun of it. Your sister told me that the two of you were cast in Greece, but the two characters were supposed to kiss, so they recast it. Can you at least admit to the first part, you were a T-bird? The biggest memory I have, there's a bit of a song that comes before the beauty school dropout, I believe. They're singing like kind of a 50s doo-wop song. They start strumming the song and then it's interrupted after like two measures, three measures, something like that. My friend Craig Williams and I <laughs> were big Who fans and we convinced the director who didn't know anything about that kind of music, knew nothing about the era where the, and was totally inappropriate. And we convinced him to let us start my generation, I believe it was. Uh, <laughs> and it's completely doesn't 
York. Weird, jarring, you know, this Greece is this 50s bullshit nostalgia. And then we're doing this, we're introducing this British invasion, you know, 10 years later. It just, it was one of those things that I can't believe we got away with that. <laughs> but that's my memory of Greece. I don't he, that was a huge, he was, he really took me from going down this path and then showed me this other path and really helped uh, uh, in my development. Uh, he, that was a, that was an awesome experience knowing him. He came over because it was cool. It was, it was just definitely more the outsiders were in my area. You were teaching what? Drama acting. When he was with me, we would have been studying comedy, but things like uh, absurdist, you know, like Ionesco was a big part of it or somebody like that. He was always fascinated with who's the best of everything. So, you know, Mike Nichols and Elaine May, Cervantes writing, you know, Don Quixote. Why is that a comedy? What's funny about it? Where does that go? And Those early acting turns, how would you describe David as an early actor? Very much above average and, you know, really good, thoughtful. I remember he played, <laughs> you want to get obscure, Pod Coleosan, Gogol's The Marriage. Very much a Todd Margaret kind of character, comic in his own way, but also just devoid of any sort of personal grit. In David's early stand-up, tell me how he worked with the audience, how he interacted with the audience. He had a thing where he would invite people to participate and go, okay, stand right here. And what's your name, sir? And he'd go over to the other guy and it's like, my name's Ted. It's like, well, okay, Ted, stand right here. And then he would continue with his audience direct address like a typical stand-up show and he would finish the set and go thank you very much i'm dave cross i'll see you again and leave the stage and the two people are still standing there with um with nothing to do and having no idea why they're called up on stage i always kind of took it as dave was going if you really want to volunteer to come up on stage, just be prepared, you know. Would you ever feel or see or perceive them be antagonistic back to him? Yeah, yeah. There were quite a few times that he would do stand-up set where the light to say, you're done, and it would flash and flash and flash, and he would keep trying to get the audience back or something until, you know, the guy from the sound booth had to come out and literally walk down to the front of the stage and go, you're off. Or the MC would have to take the microphone away, kind of thing. And that was like fireworks or something. <laughs> that relationship to the audience of, no, we're not friends. And no, I really don't like it here, was an interesting approach, I thought. Were those uncomfortable beats with the audience? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I always took it as being a kind of amazing thing that it didn't make him want to go back and change his act, it didn't make him want to go back and um, reassess what he was doing at the same time it'd be interesting to see if he's you know alienating the audience is probably lessened to some degree in that he probably has many more experiences where he can relate to people or understand the value of somebody that he might have laughed at when he was in his 20s and dismissed you know that now he might have more patience for some of that stuff doing something with the audience that's a new departure is it too simple to say David loves and doesn't love the audience? Yeah, I, yeah, I think so. I think, um, did I tell you the story? No. Oh, um, it's John Benjamin, and I'm a free thinker. David was asked by the Strokes to do their Apollo show, which I, I believe was the New Year's Eve 2001. 
So they asked him to open because they were fans of his. And I did this bit with him, which came at the very tail end of his 45 minute set where he sang a song kind of like a Lee Greenwood uh, song about America. Uh, my role was just to play God from the backstage mic in which we like, we had a back and forth <laughs> and it was, I'd never seen like a more like vitriolic <laughs> reaction of uh, like 3000 people just to have him stop performing. He got out on stage and there, I, whether or not there were any Dave Cross fans there, only the Strokes were the, enjoying it. <laughs> One thing I do remember is that John Benjamin played God in the in his voiceover thing when David went out. He also announced him and then like some thing where he played God. So funny. It's such a big time in my life, but I, I don't remember it like it was yesterday. <laughs> and if you remember it, maybe you weren't there, you know? <laughs> you know? Just so I sound smart, um, tell me your name and what you do. So you sound smart? My name is Albert Hammond Jr., archaeologist of life. <laughs> and you play a little music, right? I think. I read that somewhere. That's part of my archaeology. <laughs> yeah, no, I play guitar in the strokes, and uh, I don't know. I don't know if we just met David. I don't remember exactly, but we definitely spoke to him about it. You know, we're like, dude, this is going to be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Like, fuck whatever anyone else thinks, but what would we think is awesome? No, I don't think we were at the age where you're like, but you think that's going to go over well. You know, do things happen in the live setting that you can't control? Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, part of what's exciting, though, too. Makes for good stories. There was nothing not amazing about it. <laughs> Every part of it. And if you see that poster to this day, it's like, I want to be there. It was a terrible idea. I love those guys and I appreciate, and I said this to them repeatedly, uh, I don't think this is a good idea. And initially they wanted me to go in between sets. So it would, uh, there were two shows at the Apollo, New Year's Eve Eve and New Year's Eve. There was gonna be a stroke set, guided by voices, stroke set, guided by voices. And they wanted me to do like 10 minutes in between the bands each time. And I was like, you're insane. That's a terrible idea. And I said, I should do most of my time up front and then I can come out and just sort of MC. But David had a horrible time because we gave, I don't know, we personally, but they gave all those noisemakers to the crowd. And so everyone was shit-faced. <laughs> He said they wouldn't stop making noise. I mean, it, it's just like, you know, wonderfully chaotic. You know, if you if you made a movie of it, you would just like, oh, they're overreacting. But it was just like wonderfully like a mess. How everything went off, I, I don't even know, you know? People were drunk. They were on drugs. They were Nobody knew I was going to do a bunch of stand-up. And, and nobody wanted to stand-up. I wouldn't want to stand up. <laughs> I mean, I, I get, I, I understand. <laughs> and, you know, it's not like it was vicious and mean and insulting. It was just people having fun, being part of a large group, heckling a comic, whoever it was, who, you know, it was like that kind of attitude. And I, at least I could recognize that. I didn't take it really personally, but it was still a very difficult thing to do. Was, <laughs> was like, oh my God. This is just, I'm just asking for it. And he like would not get off. And he like explained very directly to the audience, like reasoning that he was like, I committed to do my full set for the strokes and I'm doing it. 
think very logically where there was no logic involved in their reaction. <laughs> like I'm not doing another, like I'm not doing a minute less. And then, you know, if you'd cut to me in the wings, like if it was Larry Sanders show, I, I would, I was like, Oh fuck. I'm like Jesus. Like, can we please get out of here? <laughs> so for my own self-interest, I was like, please get off the stage. Cause I don't want to wait here for 45 minutes. Like in like it was hostile. Wow. Like openly hostile. People were screaming throughout. Almost I was like gonna take the mic because I had a backstage mic and be like, David, it's John. You can get off stage. Nobody will care. <laughs> but he cared. People were throwing shit and it was like a really like and I I think I, the members of the strokes came up to him and were like, like, holy shit, man. Like that was amazing. <laughs> it wasn't like People were throwing beer at him. They were just started the party too soon, and he was trying to do jokes. And so what he did instead of doing his jokes is he just, you know, was winging it. And we just found that part amazing. So I don't know if the crowd that was coming to see us for New Year's exactly knew, if everyone knew him. You know what I mean? So it was like we were just, you got to imagine, we're like a brand new band with a record that was like in press that was like going strong or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> Did you ever think, oh, this should end? Or were you kind of, oh, this is wild? We've been on the road with bands that it's been where it's felt like, shit, maybe we should go out there and <laughs> say something like we invited them. Like this is, I feel terrible for them, you know? Um, there was never a moment where David wasn't handling himself and the crowd on stage. So as much as like they were annoying, like he was still hilarious. He seemed more pro than uh, than any of us would have been in that in that situation. So, but we definitely spoke about it in the after party, and like I remember clearly David coming up and be like, "Oh, so whose idea was it to have uh, all those toys?" Like, "Oh, management. Oh, great. I'm gonna go speak to them." Like jokingly, obviously, just being really sarcastic. But you know, we were probably just telling him like, "No, man, it wasn't." I know you were emotionally feeling that, but I promise you, like. You were funny, but especially now with all I know, you know, comedians, it's like, that's much harder. Much harder than what you do? Yeah, yeah. To go out alone like that to what you need to control in your mind. I'm in a group and we can lean on each other. And I don't know, it's just a different experience with the with the crowd. I, I, w- I would say, I would say it's, it's harder, yeah. Yeah, he would. Of course he would. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Now that time has passed, it, it's uh, somewhat amusing. But it was a, it was a. That's certainly top five worst experiences I've ever had. At one point, I just turned my back and, and said, "Look, I'm just going to talk to the curtain. I'm going to do my jokes, but I'm just going to talk to the curtain." I just turned my back. And here's the thing, Robert. As bad as the experience might be in the moment, even going back to when I was, you know, first starting, and I've done this before, I've done this watching other friends, you know, in situations where they're just having a brutal time. And there is kind of, um, you know, it's entertaining on some level, and it's cathartic, but you know, you're going to be okay, you're going to get through it, you're not going to get beat up your career isn't going to be over. You're going to do this set. It's going to suck. It's going to be a difficult 30 minutes, but you know, you'll get through it and you'll have a story at the end. And, uh, and part of plowing through that is saying is knowing that is going, okay, this sucks, but perhaps 
15 years later, there'll be somebody who wants to do a podcast. I don't know what a podcast is. They haven't been invented yet, but say they are. They'll have a podcast about that, and I'll tell this story on that podcast. And, oh, won't that be, you know, interesting and fun? And I have arrived unscathed, um, and my career hasn't suffered. And so you kind of know that when you're in the moment. Do you think that hurt him? Uh, I think he was, like a little shaken from it for sure it was like but he stayed out there and he did it like he did the whole thing and but i can tell you the post uh, the postscript of that story was a year later we were at maxwell's together doing i think a, a yellow tango hanukkah show and we were at the bar i felt like like on my feet like wet something wet and a guy was standing behind david pissing on him like just pissing on his leg <laughs> inside the bar. And David turned around and he's like, what the fuck? And the guy was like, you fucking ruined my New, New Year's Eve <laughs> last year. Oh my Christ. <laughs> and I think it like get, get why it came to fisticuffs. But David was like, what? He was like, I think the guy was like tripping too. Like he was not well. It, was, it wasn't like a formal declaration. Like I... I, I piss on you, sir, for what you did. It wasn't chivalrous. It wasn't from the 16th century. That was the old, the old way of showing displeasure. What a callback. Great callback. Yeah, one of the best callbacks. Yeah. Best callback, I think, ever I, that I've ever seen. Like a year later. Yes. Better than the last episode of Newhart. Was it Julian Casablancas from The Strokes? <laughs> That would have been the beautiful tag. And that's a common thing among stand-ups. You know, if you ask older stand-ups to talk about running running the room, you know, scaring everybody away, most of them would have a story about a time or two or three where they were getting in a bad place with an audience and they just dug deeper to, until everyone left. Are you calling me from underneath your duvet? <laughs> <laughs> Hey, man. What's your name and what do you do? Oh, my name is Bob Odenkirk, and I'm uh, in entertainment. <laughs> I do all kinds of things. I'm an actor and a writer and whatever it is to tell a story or make fun of things. <laughs> <laughs> What's your relationship to this guy, David Cross? How do you know him? David and I met in around... Uh, 1993 or so 94 and then we really enjoyed we got to know each other he he was a comedy writer and performer and i was a comedy writer and performer sorry about that noise and uh we started working together and created a show called mr show it was a sketch show that ran on hbo from about 1994 through 98 99 somewhere in there yeah. Your memory is pretty sharp, eh? Uh, is it? I'm I'm guesstimating at the most important thing in my life, <laughs> career-wise. Amber Tamblin, and I am a um, artist, writer, 
director, all kinds of things. <laughs> it's basically like we're in a poly, I'm in a polyamorous relationship with Bob Odenkirk because I'm sharing David with him. And it'll be, you know, oh, Bob's calling. And he like goes in the room and shuts the door. I'm like, okay. They just love each other so much. It's really, really cute. I cannot wait for them to become like little old grandpas. They're going to be the cutest. Be careful what you wish for. I mean, he's almost there. Yeah, I, I'm writing a memoir, so I'm actually writing about this time in my life a lot lately. So that helps me, too, to, to have the numbers somewhere close to my mouth. Oh, how cool. So this is like a scrimmage. Good. <laughs> how does that feel to go back? It's very hard and a little bit unpleasant. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a real um, – it's hard. It's very, it's very hard to do, um, especially because I – I'm a very serious person in general. I mean, I joke around, but I'm serious about joking around and uh, I take my work seriously. And as a result, I don't have a lot of lighthearted, silly stories about making all this great comedy. Mostly I just thought hard and worked hard and did a lot of work and writing and rewriting. And I didn't do drugs or screw around or get, I just worked. That's a dry story to tell. And so I have to try to make it, uh, Interesting. Well, this chat is over. <laughs> okay. Um, that's a you know, sign me up for two of your memoirs. Cool. I love when smart, funny people say smart things about being funny. Yeah, I feel the same way. I, I also feel like it's um, some people uh, who I know and love say you can't talk about comedy at all. You can't analyze it. It's just not possible to do it in a meaningful way. Uh, and I just disagree. I think you can absolutely analyze it and talk about it and break it down. And I'm not sure how much value it is, but I think it's some value. And I just don't think it's... <sighs> I don't think it's as magical as maybe some people want it to be. How much of it is DNA and how much of it is learned? Uh, is there a gift of being funny? I think there's a gift of being funny for sure. I think David is like maybe the funniest person I know, but he's in a group of people who are all very close to each other in being that funny. Um, but he's right, right there in the, in that lead group quick with a line and very, very fast, nimble mind comedically. He really is always being funny. Can you teach that? Uh, no, I think you can, you can get better at it if you have it already. I don't think you can teach it, but I also think it's not the only thing you need to make good comedy or art is that one quality. I mean, there's all kinds of aspects to uh what we do and we need people who are good at all the different aspects of it so uh, you don't need to have the full compliment like david does <laughs> but if you have some of it and then you have other skills that you bring to the table you can have a damn good time being a part of the comedy world you know it's weird it's almost whenever i talk about audiences and pleasing them or what it sounds like i lean on them or blame them or something you know but i do <laughs> it's a uh, you have to take them into account and david does not care the way i do about pleasing people he loves to make people upset <laughs> <laughs> well let's just say he's as equally pleased with having pissed them off as he is with having made them laugh he always wanted to do it with mr show we did 
versions of it, I would argue. Thinking about you writing on SNL, Mm -hmm. do you recall watching dress rehearsals with live audiences around those times? And as a writer, how important were the audiences to developing your work on SNL? Yeah, that's a tough call. I love tough calls. (laughs) Assemblies full of them. Tough calls, tough love, and perfectly imperfect memories. But this is still a business trip, so let's ask around. I want to know more about the audience. Well, David's audience. And in this case, the audiences of Mr. Show, who were looked at by the creators in a really classic, funny way. But it wasn't just David listening for their laughs, which were all real laughs, by the way. So come back, and we're off to the show. But now this. Hi again, it's me, Rob. I want to take a minute and tell you about two new online classes I'm offering at the Modern School of Film. One is our Culture Club, which is a weekly online get-together of folks from around the world who love movies and TV and things that move, and we talk about what they're seeing, how they're seeing it, and what they think they saw. Each week I suggest something for the group to watch, and then we meet and share thoughts. It's just that easy and fun. Oh, and come as you are. There's no experience needed. Just need your big brains, your eyes, and your thoughts. The other class is our Creators Lab. It's a weekly online gathering of filmmakers, writers, producers, podcasters, where they share their work and get feedback from me, and more importantly, each other. If you want to join but you don't have anything to show, just come and share your thoughts. Those are just as important. It's a super cool group of folks who gather. They don't bite tons. They just love to get together and share their work and talk about how that work can get out into the larger world. You do not have to make a living as a creator to join. You just have to want to share and take part in one of my favorite things, the dialogue. Visit www.modernschooloffilm.com for all dates and details on the classes. And there you can email me directly with any questions you might have. And I tell you right now, they're all good questions. So check it out. And I hope to see you there. Now, back to the assembly. At Saturday Night Live, when I joined the show, it was 15 years in, 13 years in. The audience was extremely important to getting your piece to work and getting it on the air. It was all different age groups now instead of, you know, that first five years was kind of a generational thing. And they shared a sensibility more and they were outrageous and they were young and they were wanting to break down barriers and they were wanting to see something new. By the time I got there, now there was an older audience that was a big part of presenting the show, and they knew what they were going to see, and they even had expectations, you know, even even specific pieces that they wanted to see because they had come to New York on a trip, and they were tourists, and it was a big deal to go to SNL. And if they could have seen just impersonations of the first group, they would have been very happy. Was there ever a sketch that you thought externally you voiced externally maybe to lauren it's good they just don't get it the audience doesn't get it well i never talked to lauren i mean he didn't want to hear from me i was not an important writer at that show but uh, there was a sketch that was genius this one piece that smigel wrote that did not do well at dress and never made it to show it's called like the genius of chaplin just brilliant brilliant subtle and dry and just just so great. A short film where Dana Carvey plays Charlie Chaplin and there's like this, uh, it's like being presented on like Turner Classic Movies and they're saying in this short early film and 
Chaplin's career, you can see him devising the character of the little tramp. And what you see is this silly um, scenario and Dana Carvey is playing uh, Chaplin. And you see in the background, John Lovitz is a guy as a background extra who's doing the tramp. And every t- and Chaplin keeps calling cut and stealing one more thing, one more thing, one more thing from this extra until he has the character that the extra was already doing. <laughs> and it's never acknowledged. It's never acknowledged. It's just always treated as Chaplin has an idea. He borrows a cane, you know. <laughs> it's just genius. It's genius. And it's super dry. And it didn't get it many laughs. And it didn't make it to air. And that's just wrong. I mean, that's a brilliant piece. Brilliant. And, you know, look at Monty Python especially the early Monty Pythons, the audience is not laughing at a lot of bits. There's just silence. You know, Lorne has really good taste in comedy. He's got the best taste in comedy. He doesn't perceive the show as his personal, you know, as a thing that exists to just please him. He's trying to serve this kind of mission or something, or some kind of sense of the show as a public trust a little bit. And, you know, he, he puts all kinds of, performers on and and pieces on that don't fit perfectly with his favorite kind of comedy because he wants to please the general audience. And he feels, I'm sure he feels it's his job and that's what he does. And he's done a very good job of it. I'm sure he would love Mr. Show or most of it. I've always been wary of following the audience, and yet you do have to listen to them. That's who you're performing for. That's who you're doing stuff for. I fall somewhere in this weird place where my goal is to please the audience, for sure, but also to help the audience understand what what it is I'm doing and, and letting them then choose to see it or not see it based on that hopefully well-characterized presentation so that the people who aren't going to like it don't bother watching it or checking it out. And then you're not trying to please people who aren't going to like what you're doing. You're also attracting people who might like it. From New York, the greatest city in the world, it's The Late Show with My first guests tonight are the Emmy Award-nominated writers, stars, uh, producers of the greatest HBO comedy series, Mr. Show. Please welcome Bob Odenkirk and David Cross. (laughs) That show am good. (laughs) Well, welcome. God, there's something in here. Yeah. Why don't you tell us about your uh, latest pay-per-view special? Okay. Well, Bob and I uh, are going to be right here in two weeks' time at Madison Square Garden. Right. Versus Simon and Garfunkel. Yeah. Fists. uh, Bare knuckle. Bare knuckle. Yeah. Uh, You can't even wear a shirt. Okay. And um, I understand you've just had a baby. 
Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, right. we had a bunch, man. We had a bunch. Yeah. We were in Vegas. We were in Las Vegas. And, and we were running out of money, yeah. and we heard you could sell. For, uh... Well... It worked, it worked out. Okay. Odenkirk and Cross. Oh, my God. I blame you, though, for that. I will take that blame, because it's one of the greatest things that ever happened in comedy, was those two... I, I, I feel... I, I can't... Oh. <laughs> well, Bob was very rude the first time I introduced them. Just, uh, there's no reason in the world for him to behave that way, but he did. That was Bob. But again, he's so gosh darn funny and smart. And also, Bob's much nicer now, too. <laughs> Having them have children and be married has softened them a great deal. But anyway, then in Montreal, when they got together, and this is 1994, my memory of it is they were sleeping in the same room because of this 16-year-old girl and her friend who had hitchhiked to come see me perform in Montreal, Geneviève and her friend, and they had no way to get home. And I refused to allow them to leave in the night, and they slept in my room on the floor. That's really nice. Bob was going to sleep in my room with me, uh, and then I said, you go sleep with David. That's my recollection of it. That's because I can't remember how else they would have wound up in the same room. But I remember Bob and David like fell in love that night. They just stayed up all night giggling like schoolgirls and stuff. Uh, you know what I mean? Like it. I know they always deep down thought the other was very funny. The Ben Stiller show had happened where uh, I was lucky enough to to be able to recommend David, and because of David's talent, Judd and Ben said, "Yeah, let's have him on." He became a writer and sometime performer on the Ben Stiller show. So Bob, I could see, could see that he was talented. He might have still been a little standoffish, but he knew David was the real thing. And so it was just like a matter of time. And then they just started like kicking around ideas and would do live versions, uh, Mr. Show in different venues, and then just started doing Mr. Show. The Marx Brothers used to do that, do their movies live to see where the laughs are. Well, it's actually not that different in a way because it's a live audience. You know, they chose to do Mr. Show in a venue that looked like a nightclub, you know, with the audience at the tables that you could sometimes see. So obviously when it went to HBO, a lot more tape pieces and do-overs, and things like that. When they were doing the workshop show at the HBO space and in Santa Monica, it was just like a live, almost like vaudeville in a way, show with sketch performer, you know, some different performers uh, and and many of whom went on to be the core team of Mr. Show. It was obviously more raw, but they were very, very motivated, very disciplined about it. And if they didn't like something, especially Bob, so smart, I would have to say, you know, he's probably right. November 3rd, 1995. Let's go back for a second. Did you go to the first taping of Mr. Show? I'm going to say, oh, no, I did not because I think I was at SNL. Do you remember going to early tapings? It was kind of a scene, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was. Uh, you would recognize uh, so many people. It's like, oh, my God, Catherine O'Hara's here. Do you know what I mean? Like that. They very quickly found an audience. It was just a great group of people, uh, a great place to be, a great time to be. But also, uh, when you're young, it's great. It just is. It just is great. Uh, when, you're, when you're young and, and, and you're going upwards, it's working out for you. You know what I mean? What you're passionate about, what you like to do, that it's actually happening for you as it was for myself, for a lot of other people in the scene and for Dave and Bob, certainly it feels great. There's, there's just no substitute for youth and the ability for your quote unquote job. Do what you want to be doing. I used to laugh all the time. I just, I, I think about that sometimes 
how much I used to laugh in a day. Are you not as happy or things are not as funny anymore? Oh, no, it's just different. I'm 56, <laughs> you know, not allowed to drink anymore. It's different. Uh, you know, my, my career is not on the way up at all. It's, uh, it is what it is. It's, there's just, there's, you know, there's no comparison to being 56. And I, I just was ha- happy all the time. Um, except for when, it, you know, when I would drink too much and blow it. But other than that, I have just fond memory after fond memory. And David is so much a part of almost every single one of them. I pine for that. And, I, and, and a lot of it is pining for youth. There's no way around that. Being, you know, 27 and even, you know, to me, 40 is young. A- anything prior to 50. When you're sober and 56, it's not that great being around a club at 2 in the morning with 20, everybody else is 25. I'm, I'm no less happy that I get to do that, but I don't laugh all the time anymore. I don't have that sense, which I think is normal for age, of what's going to happen tonight. That amazement um, happened a lot back then, too. And also, you know, people were really finding out about Bob and Dave and the scene. But David was early on a kind of a star of those shows or a standout of those things, as was Bob. I'm still amazed by you. <laughs> well, you're very kind, but I feel like it was that I was lucky enough to be around so many intelligent and funny people. How would you describe your involvement in Mr. Show? I was in sketches. I ran with those guys. You know, we all did comedy together. and It was really, really fun. I saw the shows they did at um, early on before they were even Mr. Show at the Diamond Club when they were developing sketches. I saw stuff at the HBO workspace. So, yeah, I mean, I... I saw a lot of the early versions of stuff. It was really cool. They'd run them in front of audiences. And then they went and discussed it. I've done a lot of punch-up and rewrites for movies where you go in and just do the room, sit there, and did that for the Fairley Brothers, and then a lot of dream work. So that's a normal thing that happens in, in Hollywood. You don't want to have too many voices there, but you also don't want to be stuck in your own bubble. So they just did it in a more um, focused, organized way. For the Marx Brothers thing, they were still transitioning from vaudeville to film. So when they were quote-unquote workshopping their stuff, they were also making money on it. They were doing shows. You did shows to, you know, also make money. You know, they didn't know if movies were a viable thing yet. Just like also when when movies came out, usually after the movie came out, they would do a one-hour radio version of it and run that as well. So it all just has to do with, you know, changing technology, I guess, and changing platforms. What's your name and what do you do? Uh, My name is Patton Oswalt. I'm a comedian. What were they like as collaborators? Did you get a sense of that? Uh, Bob and David, not Harpo, Groucho, Chico. Uh, I mean, they, they definitely were huge fans of comedy and frustrated with things that they didn't see comedy doing. So they really, really gelled on that idea of being people who loved, truly loved the form, but were like, why can't it go this way? Why, why did it never go this way? And they found someone else that also wanted to take it in that direction. So you saw this real energy and excitement of, oh, we're getting to do all these things that we've always wanted to see comedy do. And that's what Mr. Show really was. And you almost wrote for the season that never was of show, right? There was Yeah, gonna, that's how it goes. You're going to be okay, man. <laughs> the history books tell me that you warmed up the audience or were part of the DNA of the actual show itself. Yeah, different comedians warmed them up because they wanted to have a comedian that would kind of keep a certain mindset going so that the live audience would be open to a lot of the sketches. So that's what I would provide. I was one of the comedians that did that. For some shows, it doesn't really matter. The material doesn't need to be that good. But other shows, they really, really want um, 
the, the warm-up back really matters. And even if, by the way, even if the warm-up back is doing something quote-unquote hacky, there are warm-up backs that they're so good at keeping a crowd energized and interested that that is an art unto itself. So, you know, beyond the, what the quality of the material is, it's the quality of the energy and the presence. It's not as easy and disposable as you think it is. Feels like Bob and David wanted to create the energy of a comedy club in a flat context. <laughs> How do you create the energy of a club when it's being taped? It depends on the crowd you bring in. It depends on how you sit them. And it depends on the, the warm-up person. I mean, when I was at Mad TV, they would just ship in audiences from like marine camps or tourists. It was just they would use the audience. Or they didn't really care about the audience. Um, Mr. Show was more trying to cultivate and curate an audience to get their particular kind of humor. With the Mr. Show crowd, you had people that kind of knew already knew me and they, they liked a very specific kind of comedy, but it was, it was easier to kind of comment on what had just happened, what they had just seen, what had gone on. They wanted to see something very specific. So I was very lucky in that regard. Could you work blue? Oh yeah. It's Mr. Show crowd. They, yeah, you could do anything you wanted, but you wanted to be funny. I want to serve the taping. I want to serve the show and make sure that they get, have a good crowd that's energized and that they get a good taping out of it. You know, I'd go up at, at first and do about 10, get them going. And then you would just kind of riff in between as they were setting up different sketches and you had to be able to sort of start and stop at the drop of a hat, turn on the dime based on, okay, we're ready. Man, that's different kind of comic calisthenics, right? But, you know, I came up out of the clubs. I came up emceeing shows and having to, you know, think on your feet and, and get, so it wasn't that hard. And again, I, I can't stress this enough. The Mr. Show crowd was a dream crowd to perform with. They could shift gears very easily. It was, it tended to be a smarter audience. So it wasn't that hard to start and stop on a dime and, and go different directions with it. With Mr. Show, it was, it was easy because we had a lot of our friends were in the crowd. A lot of the fans of Bob and David, they were attracting a very specific kind of fan that understood that from the get-go. How long was a Mr. Show taping? Under two hours. They had it pretty tight. They didn't want to have to do that many retakes because they wanted that, again, they wanted that spontaneous energy as much of it as they could capture. So they were never that long. One of the longest ones was the story of Mount Everest where they had to keep resetting the, the shelves with the thimbles on it. That in itself became fun to watch. Oh, they're really going to do this this many times. It was, you know, so again, because you had an audience of comedy fans and not just tourists, they were like, is just as delighted and fascinated with watching the process of how they were pulling this off. A more standard comedy audience like, why are we sitting here watching this? Mm. You know? Thomas! Richard! Oh, 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 bless my soul, brother, you did it! Climbed Mount Everest. Tell Richard the story! Yes, yes, yes. You should have seen me, Richard. Oh, I was on the North Face, ascending it. In the bitter cold. No, 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 not about Everest, about you slipping. <laughs> but I climbed Mount Everest. Please, dear, it was funny. Oh, <laughs> I want to hear a funny story. Oh, <laughs> oh well, um, well, I, I was just over here and I was telling of the final ascent. Yes. And uh, I thought this behind me was a, a stool, and so I rested on it <laughs> and I fell. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so that's what you did. I am so sorry, Mother. Once was funny, twice is just not being careful. Well, no matter, we'll help you. Yes, help. Oh, 
There. Good as new. Yes. Uh, so, as I was saying, yes. I had ascended the peak, and I was standing amongst the, the heavy winds, bracing careful, myself. Careful. But, uh, don't worry, Mother. <laughs> the wind blew. <laughs> you did it twice! Three times! <laughs> you weren't here! He did it three times! <laughs> Please, help me. We never sweetened the laughs, except when we were transitioning between two pieces and we were and there was a cut or a stop down. Then we would marry the laughter or the re audience response. Those are all live laughs, all the films. Every laugh that the films get is live, real people watching that film at that moment. We showed them the show in the same order that you see it in an episode. We never sweeten laughs on Mr. Show. I believe sketch comedy needs uh, live laughs. It's yeah. You know, I even think most comedy needs laughs and people. You like to laugh with a group. You like to be in that group. There's things that are super dry that sort of lean more toward drama that are funny that I wouldn't want to ruin with a live audience laughing. Right? Um, the Big Lebowski. <laughs> most overt comedy. It's good to have a laugh, laughter around you. It's great. It doesn't ruin it. I don't understand. I mean, the fact that it's overplayed by a shitty, unfunny show doesn't mean you shouldn't have it in a funny show. I was actually writing about this in my memoir just now. Just now. We hired one of those audience services to get audience in. And uh, it was mostly uh, Latino couples. They were young and they were looked like they were on a date, looked like they were headed to a prom. Uh, but they they went along with it. They laughed. You can hear them laughing. They were great, uh, considering they were like, what the hell is this? <laughs> we thought we were at a TV show, but it doesn't quite look like a TV show. But in the end, I mean, we still got our laughs. It, later, almost, I would argue, very quickly, we had enough people to fill the place without needing to uh, – drum up audiences i don't understand people who want to do sketch comedy with no audience doesn't make any sense to me did it become an event oh yeah yeah it was a big it was it was the fucking thing it was great to be part of a scene like that which you know that was a great feeling great joyful feeling probably the thing i most wanted out of snl which is that feeling of that first group where you you felt like everyone in the audience and everyone in the cast were all from the same social group. That's that's that that group feeling that I wanted, and I and I got it. David and Bob and Ennis and Jay Johnston and Laura Keitlinger and um, uh, Laura Milligan and uh, Tom Kenny and and Jill Talley and Karen Kilgariff and Brian Posehn and. Scott Ackerman and Jack Black and Kathy. I, I got at the time Jack Black and Kathy Griffin were dating. Was it one big key party? I mean, were you guys all dating? It, a little bit, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't total Fleetwood Mac, but there were a few <laughs> relationships going on in there, just like any workplace, you know, <laughs> that's fun. And um, what was it called? Fellini's? He must have talked about that bar in L.A. We would always go to this place to eat. Fiorelli's or Fellini's or... Us Italians are all the same, so you're, you're there. 
And uh, there was a bar. It was a, a bar we went to every night. It was like the whole kind of Mr. Show gang before Mr. Show. And during, I think. Um, Mark Cohen was, was a comic, is a comic. And he was the guy who had the apartment where everyone went after doing stand-up. And, and uh, we all watched the Ben Stiller show. And we just, from day one, we watched every episode of the Ben Stiller show. We're, and comics are, you know not usually apt to run home to watch comedy, but for some reason that was like, we couldn't, we just ate that show up, you know? What's your name and what do you do? Uh, my name is Sarah Silverman and I'm a, a comedian. How did you get involved in Mr. Show? I knew David already. As a matter of fact, the first time I went to LA, David um, picked me up and, and drove me all around and showed me around. I made a mixtape, but I have it still, but it's a cassette, so I can't play it. LA trip. That's amazing. You know, and I put it into the tape player of his car and it had Tori Amos on it and he made fun of me. I was just like, I can't help what feels good in my ear holes. Like, it just seems like such an odd thing to make fun of music, but I guess I can be that way too, you know. One of the things I think is amazing is your brain. I saw you saying exactly when you moved to L.A. was January 5th, 1995. Is that right? Or was that kind of pin the tail on the donkey? <laughs> I, I, the, I couldn't tell you what I did yesterday, but for some reason I remember exactly it was January 5th, 1995. I don't know why. Are you nostalgic by nature? Yeah, I can get, I get nostalgic and I love, you know, every once in a while someone will send me pictures or I'll come across pictures and send them out, you know, and, and it's so much from that time too. I lived in a tiny apartment with a woman named Tracy Katsky and Mary Lynn Ricecup. Tracy produced their live shows in Santa Monica, Katsky. You know, I wasn't part of the main cast, but I, I would come and do like ancillary things, you know, because all our friends were there. We all did Jeepers Creepers. And, you know, I did a thing where I was wearing a dress with David. There was live stuff, uh, blowing up the moon. It's all like a fever dream. I actually started watching. I just watched a few sketches on YouTube to try to remember, you know. So I watched it and I go, oh, look at all the people in bit parts that went on to such greatness. And there's so much intersect, like there's so much cross-section of it. Amy Silver, who's Benjamin's common-law wife, did the art, did that Mr. Show guy, that drawing that is Mr. Show is her. And I was supposed to write season four and I took an acting job instead, which I is, is a bit of a regret. But um, I mean, it was really neat to see like what was born out of like Mr. Show and stuff, you know. I feel like uh, I feel like Zelig in a in a way, you know. I feel like I I was kind of there for so much stuff. I was there, you know, like the mouse in Goodnight Moon, you know. <laughs> I know now. <laughs> but it's so funny, you know. Life is so long if it, if you let it. Are you still there? Because I heard my um headphones went boo 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 boo. Well, there is no question, there is no question that Mr. Show, which I wish had lasted, you know, two or three more seasons, but at the length it was, satisfied my desire to show everybody what I could do in that venue and is very satisfying. 
I still love sketch comedy. I would do more of it, but I don't need that now because I can point to that thing and go, there, I, I did it. It was great. Worked great, just like I thought it would. <laughs> and it, it's a great feeling. It's the best thing. The best thing. Honestly, there's a phenomenon I've noticed with many of my friends. When you want something really bad, whether it's a stage or a spotlight or a show, or a, you usually want to just present your material in the best possible way at least one time in your life. When you've gotten that chance to do that, you can exhale. It's a great thing to see. I've loved seeing it in people and I suppose in my life. You can exhale and you can now go, what else would I do? And what if I didn't just follow my urges and needs? Because I got my needs met, clearly met by the audience and reward and everything. I got money, I got fame, I got support, I've got fans. I can relax and I can open my brain up a little. And uh, it's a great thing to see. So when you tell me he's doing this other thing, if he's doing it in an honest way and he's going to them and saying, which bits did you like? Which did you understand? I mean, it's exactly what he should be doing. It's only going to make him great and be as great as he he should be as a stand-up. He's enjoyed teasing and torturing the audience and tricking them. I think it might be that, a feeling of like, I've tricked him. I've tricked him 10,000 times. I did that. It worked. It was great. I got a lot of laughs with it. What else can I do? I think it's neat if he does one where he doesn't do that. Um, he doesn't need to. He's just plain funny. Amber Tamblin told me she can't wait for you and David to get to the grandpa years. Yeah. I, I hope you're going to put that down on paper, what the grandpa years might be like. It would be a touring version of The Odd Couple. <laughs> when that happens, and you know we've had grandchildren. Who's Oscar? Uh, I guess I would be Oscar. People like it when I get grumpy. I'll take two seats on the aisle. Cool. No, but it's good. You helped me focus, too. It's good to hear and talk to you. Thank you. I'm learning that when comics do funny things, they're doing them with all of the other funny and unfunny people they've met beforehand. Now, this sounds like some sort of bad safe sex PSA from the 90s, but the sharper point is that comedians are both audience member and performer in one. There's a centrifuge of people and places and tastes and voices and sounds that comedy passes through until something is ready for the big room, including this really small room that I'll see in a few days in Brooklyn. So all of this noise is crucial. But noise plus time equals something. Was that tragedy plus time? I'll ask David. On the next part of Assembly... But do you think there's a kid in Montana, David, that is like, wow, that is kind of interesting? Yeah, but only in Montana. Only in Montana. When did you first hear of David Cross? Have you heard of <laughs> Would you like me to introduce you? What is the line? When do you know you're not just a funny guy, you're a stand-up comic? Oh, I don't know. I've, I've questioned that 
every year that I've done comedy. Does he ever look to you and say, what did you think? No. <laughs> uh, not really, no. I agreed with him, and, and it gave me kind of new interests and new marching orders and just a new perspective. Yeah, it changed me. But a lot of things changed me. The fact that she really thought about what I was saying and took it in the spirit that I intended it. Moving is the word I keep coming back to, but, but it really, uh, it's an extraordinary thing. Assembly is created and produced by me, Robert Malazzo. Original music for this season is by Fred Armisen. The Assembly theme is by A&R. And Mr. Show covers on this episode are by Mike Penny and Adam Stacy. Visit our website, theassemblypodcast.com. Send any questions, comments you have. You can also suggest an assembly you'd like me to feature on the show. And of course, you can contribute there. Your contributions are incredibly appreciated. I promise. Assembly is a presentation of the Modern School of Film. Mm-hmm.